0: Chapter six of the combined maze by mae sinclair. This librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor, Maine chapter six ranny had received his first intimation that he was not a free man and it had come upon him with something of a shock he had made his burst for freedom five years ago when he refused to be a pharmaceutical chemist in his father's shop because he could not stand his father's ubiquity and yet he was not free to leave his father's house for he did not see how as things were going he could leave his mother he was not free to ask his friends there either not that was to say friends who were strangers to his father and the headache above all he was not free to ask winnie diamond he had thought he was but his mother had made him see that he wasn't because of his father's headache that he really ought not to expose the poor old humming-bird to the rude criticism of people who did not know how good he was that was what his mother bless her had been trying to make him see and if it came to exposing if this was to be a fair sample of their sundays if the humming-bird was going to take the cake for queerness what right had he to expose little winnie and would she stand it if he did she might come once perhaps but not again the humming-bird would be a bit too much for her then how on earth ranny asked himself was he going to get any further with a girl like winnie his acquaintance with her was bound to be a furtive and a secret thing he loathed anything furtive and he hated secrecy and winnie would loathe and hate them too and she might turn on him and ask him why she was to be made love to in the streets when his mother had a house and he lived in it it was the first time that this idea of making love had come to him of course he had always supposed that he would marry some day but as for making love it was his mother who had put into his head that exquisitely agitating idea to make love to little Winnie and to marry her if and that was not by any means so certain she would have him no idea could well have agitated ranny more it blunted the fine razor-like edge of his appetite for sunday supper it obscured his interest in the pinkin, which he had unearthed from under the sofa cushion in the back parlor whither he had withdrawn himself to think of it and thinking of it took away the best part of his sunday night's sleep for after all it was impossible and the more you thought of it the more impossible it was he couldn't marry he simply couldn't afford it on a salary of eight pounds a month which was a little under a hundred a year he couldn't even afford it on his rise fellows did but he considered it was a beastly shame of them yes a beastly shame it was to go and tie a girl to you when you couldn't keep her properly to say nothing of letting her in for having kids you couldn't keep at all ranny had very fixed and firm opinions about marrying for he had seen fellows doing it rushing bald-headed into this tremendous business for no reason but that they had got so gone on some girl they couldn't stick it without her ranny in his decency considered that that wasn't a reason that they ought to stick it that they ought to think of the girl and that of all the beastly things you could do to her this was the beastliest because it tied her he had more than ever decided that it was so as he lay in his attic sleepless on his narrow iron bedstead staring up at the steep slope of the whitewashed ceiling that leaned over him pressed on him and threatened him watching it glimmer and darken and glimmer again to the dawn he had put away from him the almost tangible vision of winnie lying there pretty as she would be in her little white nightgown and her hair tossed over his pillow perhaps and he vowed that for Winnie's sake he would never do that thing as for the feeling he had unmistakably begun to have for Winnie, he would have to put that away too until he could afford to produce it it might also be wiser for his own sake to give up seeing her until he could afford it but to this pitch of abnegation ranny for all his decency couldn't rise besides he had to see her he had to see her home and so he took his feeling and put it away together with a certain sachet scented with violets and having a pattern of violets on a white satin ground and the word violet going slantwise across it in embroidery he had bought it from his mother in the shop to keep he said in his drawer among his handkerchiefs and in his drawer among his handkerchiefs he kept it wrapped tenderly in tissue paper he tried hard to forget that he had really bought it to give it to winnie on her birthday he tried hard to forget his feeling wrapped up and put away with it but he couldn't forget it because every day his handkerchiefs impregnated with the scent of violets gave out a whiff that reminded him and his feeling was inextricably entangled with that whiff it was with him as he worked in his mahogany pen at woolridge's all day a faint odour of violets clung to him and spread itself subtly about the counting-house and the fellows noticed it and sniffed and oh how they chaffed him you've been rolling in a bed of violets ranny and oh what price violets and you might tell us her name old chappie if you won't give the address till his life was a burden to him so to end the nuisance he took that sachet wrapped in tissue paper and put it in the round japan tin box where he kept his collars and let his collars run loose about the drawer he shut the lid down tight on the smell and took the box and hid it in the cupboard where his boots were where the smell couldn't possibly get out and where the very next day his mother found it and received some enlightenment as to ranny's state of mind but like a wise woman she kept it to herself and the smell departed gradually from the region of ranny's breast pocket and he had peace in his pen his fellow clerks suspected him of a casual encounter and no more a matter too trivial for remark the counting-house at woolridge's was an immense long room under the roof lit by a row of windows on each side and a skylight in the middle the door gave on a passage that ran the whole length of the room dividing it in two right and left the space was partitioned off into pens more or less open on ransome's right as he entered was the pen for the women typists on his left the petty cashier's pen overlooking the women next came the ledger clerks then the statement clerks and facing these the long desk of the checking staff at the back of the room right and left were the pens of the very youngest clerks who made invoices from their high desks they could see the bald spot on the assistant secretary's head he the highest power in that hierarchy had a special pen provided for him behind the ledger and the statement clerks a little innermost sanctuary approached by a short passage surrounded entirely by glass he could overlook the whole of his dominion from the boys at the bottom to the grey-headed cashier and the women typists at the top and in between scattered and in rows the tops of men's heads heads dark and fair and grizzled all bowed over the long desks all diminished and obscured in their effect by the heavy mahogany of their pens by the shining brass trellis work that screened them by the emerald green of the hanging lampshades by the blond lights and clear shadows of the walls and by the everlasting streaming drifting and shifting of the white paper that they handled the whole place was full of sounds the hard clicking of the typewriters and under it the eternal rustling of the white papers the scratching of pens the thud of ledgers on desks the hiss of their turning leaves and the sharp smacking and slamming as they closed and in the middle of that stir and motion made by hands all those tops of heads were still as if they took no part in it through the intensity of their absorption they were detached every now and then one of them would lift and hold up a face among those tops of heads and it was like the sudden uncanny insurgence of an alien life that stillness was abhorrent to young ransome so was the bowing of his head the cramping of his limbs and his sense of imprisonment in his pen and all his life he would go on sitting there in that intolerable constraint he had no hope beyond exchanging a larger pen at the bottom of the room for a smaller one at the top he had begun at the very bottom as an invoice clerk at a pound a week he was now a statement clerk at eight pounds a month working up through all his grades he would become a ledger clerk at twelve pounds a month he might stick at that forever but if he had luck he might become a petty cashier at sixteen pounds that couldn't happen before he was thirtieth then he was bound to get his rise in the autumn but that was no good it wouldn't be safe not really safe to marry until he'd become a petty cashier to end in the petty cashier's narrow pen by the door that was the goal and summit of his ambition day in day out he worked now with desperate assiduity he bowed his young head he cramped his glorious limbs he steeped his very soul in statements of account for furniture Furniture bought with hideous continuity by lucky devils, opulent beasts, beasts that wallowed inconsiderately, worst of all by beasts, abominable beasts, who couldn't afford it and were yet about to marry and to set up house. Woolridge's offered a shameless encouragement to these. It lured them on. It laid out its nets for them and caught and tangled them and flung them to their ruin. All over London and the provinces, Woolridge's posters were displayed, flaunting yet insidious posters where a young man and a young woman with innocent idiotic faces were seen gazing fascinated into woolridge's windows woolridge's artists had a wild humour that gave the show away by exaggerating the innocence and idiocy of woolridge's victims it appealed to ransom by the audacity with which it had defied woolridge's to see its point woolridge's itself was a perpetual tempting and solicitation ranny wondered how in those days he ever resisted its appeal to him to be a man and risk it and make a home for winnie and as the months went on he kept himself fitter than ever he did dumbbell practice in his bedroom he sprinted like mad he rode hard on the river he was so fit that in june just before stock-taking he entered for the wandsworth athletic sports and won the silver cup against fred booty in the hurdle race He was more than ever punctual at the Gym, And sometimes, on a Sunday afternoon, he would take Winnie for a bicycle ride into the country. He liked pushing her machine up all the hills. Still more, he liked to help her in her first fierce charging of them with a strong hand at the back of her waist. That was nothing to the joy of scorching on the level with linked hands. And it was best of all when they rested, sitting side by side under a birch tree on the common, or lying in the long grass of the fields thus on a sunday afternoon in june they found themselves alone in a corner of a meadow in southfields all day ransome had been overcome by a certain melancholy which Winnie, for some reason affected to ignore they had been silent for a perceptible time ransome lying on his back while Winnie, seated beside him gathered what daisies and buttercups were within her reach and as he watched her side long it struck him all at once that winny's life was worse even than his own winny was clever and she had a berth as bookkeeper in starker's one of the smaller draper's shops in oxford street near woolridge's her position was as good as his yet she only earned five pounds a month to his eight and he hated to think of winny working anyway winny he said suddenly do you like bookkeeping of course i do said winny she didn't but she was not going to say so lest he should think she was discontented they- Are they decent to you at starker's of course they are i would like said winnie in her grandest manner to see anybody trying it on with me oh well i suppose it's all right if you like it but i thought perhaps you didn't you'd no business to think can't help it born thinking well it shows how much you know i mean to enjoy life said winnie and i do enjoy it ranny lying on his back with his face turned up to the sky said that that was a jolly sight more than he did that for his part he thought it a pretty rotten show Winnie stared for this utterance was most unlike him my goodness whatever in the world's wrong with you everything he answered gloomily was wrong what an idea said Winnie. it was an idea he said if it was nothing else at any rate it was his idea and Winnie wanted to know what made him have it oh i dunno there are things a fellow wants he hasn't got what sort of things all sorts well don't think about them think said Winnie, of the things you have got what things why said Winnie, counting them off on her fingers you've got a father and a mother and new tires to your bike good boots she had stuck buttercups in their laces and a most beautiful purple tie she held another buttercup under his chin it is a tidy tie ranny admitted smiling because of the buttercups but me hat's a bit rocky quite a good hat said winnie looking at it with her little head on one side and you've won the silver cup for the wandsworth hurdle race what more do you want it's what a fellow hasn't got he wants well what haven't you got then prospects said ranny i've no prospects not for years and years no said winnie with decision and didn't ought to have not at your age she had no sympathy for him and no understanding of his case Ranny sat up, stared about him, and sighed profoundly. And because he could think of nothing else to say, he suggested that it was time to go. Winnie sprang to her feet with a swiftness that implied that if it was to go he wanted, she was more than ready to oblige him. As she mounted her bicycle, the shut firmness of her mouth, the straightness of her back, and the grip of her little hands on the handlebars were eloquent of her determination to be gone. and her face, he noticed, was pinker than he ever remembered having seen it. And he wondered what it was he had said. End of chapter six recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine.